Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Judah and Noah. Okay, so we're back to the original topic, which is what is the topic? I mean, I do have an idea for a topic. What, but, what is it? But it's terrible. No, what is it? No, it's going to be awful. What do you mean? <laughs> you, you're I mean, a it's good topic like, maker. It's the topic that we're always hovering around. What do you think it is? Oh, shit. No. <laughs> the topic we're always hovering around? Oh, God. I mean, it has to do with, so, you know, heart-mind thing, right? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah we hover around and, that a lot. Yeah, and so yeah. there's like the tension between the heart-mind. Oh, wait, I, oh, wait. Wait, is it positive negative? There's that too, <laughs> right? Is it? Is it? <laughs> so okay, this is not the this is not the episode of trinities. This is the episode of dualities. Dualities, right? Right? Is it why you're so negative and I'm so positive? Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call that into question, which of course is a negation response. <laughs> yeah. You could say that's negative, but if you really get into the Hegelian dialectic, which I've been getting into lately, of course, (laughs) then you know they talk about thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. But apparently, that's actually bullshit. Like, really, that was the synthesis part, or no, the whole terminology. Hegel didn't like that terminology. That was actually the terminology of a previous philosopher whose Uh name I can't remember. But um, Hegel, no, it wasn't Heidegger. It was. Someone with beginning with a name with beginning with an F, I believe. How many philosophers can there be with a name F? Yeah, Franz. <laughs> Who the fuck is Franz? <laughs> anyway, so Hegel thought of it as abstract negation concrete, hmm. abstract. which is a really interesting okay. different formulation, mm-hmm. right? So you yeah. have a similar type of thing with the antithesis and negation are these kind of. Uh, contradictory responses, you could say. But the idea that the initial phase is something abstract, you know, and that which becomes concretized in the dialectical relationship. So you have something which is essentially not well expressed because it's sort of new and it's just coming up. It's like just sort of... Uh, hovering around in the atmosphere and people are getting a feeling for it like, yeah, we need something new. What is it going to be? And someone says something somewhat inarticulate that everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's something. That's, you know. Uh And then there's a reaction to that, which is the negation response. And that forces the thing to become concrete in a way that it wasn't when it initially showed up. So the dialectical process kind of means that there's not really a definite thing, right? The the idea of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis is that there are definite um, entities or kind of conceptual entities that are arising and being dealt with. And this is a way more amorphous kind of spiritual way of looking at it. Mm. Apparently, Hegel was really into this concept of Geist, which is sort of like spirit, and it's spirit in a very large sense. It's like a collective spiritual process that he sees as happening. And what happened is Marx, who was a student of Hegel, materialized that and turned it into dialectical materialism. 
Mm. He started to see history in these terms, whereas Hegel was looking at spiritual dynamics in these terms. And I think there's something really fascinating to, to all of that, which also gets back to this basic kind of, we, we were dueling about the spiritual meaning of the three levels that you were describing last time. Right. And that spiritual point of view, I was saying, well, maybe not, you know, right. it's, there's a tendency to materialize the spiritual, which, right. which is part of the kind of necessary process in order to continue living. And so my thesis and the thing that would be a, maybe a good topic to talk about, which is extremely annoying, is that spirit and material are at war with each other. They're not cooperative. They have different aims, and there's always tension between them. When we're pursuing material gain, when we're pursuing a relationship with the material world so that we're able to get what we want out of it, right? There's a tendency for the spirit to suffer as a consequence mm. and vice versa, right? So mm. what happened with Jesus, mm. right? He was someone who devoted himself to the spirit mm -hmm. and his material world was ripped from him, mm. mm -hmm. right? To me, that is the kind of core of our disagreement. You know, we want to be able to bring the spirit into a relationship with the material that would be spiritual. But I think that's fucking impossible. Yet at the same <laughs> Well, as you're saying this though, what what comes to my mind is um yet the entire physical world is infused with the spirit. Right. Yes. So everything physical <laughs> is the carrier of something spiritual. Yes. Right. So it's it's you know there's one these opposing forces yet at the same time there's an alchemical wedding between them also. Well, I think you could say that they cannot exist without each other. Exactly. Well, yeah, the material wouldn't be here without the spirit. Right. right? And so, vice versa. Yeah, they all need each other. Maybe. Right? I mean, well, that would be. The, yeah, I mean, I would say the spirits maybe more eternal. We don't really know, yeah. but but we can definitely say the physical has precipitated out of the spiritual. Right. It's it's an yes. inversion. It's the inversion. The the physical world is the inversion of the spiritual world, as above, so below. That's, I think, a great way of putting it. I think inversion is perfect because it's upside down. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like yeah. as above, so below, except it's upside down. Right. As within, <laughs> so without. Yeah, but the meeting right. point, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like it looks like it's sort of a mirror thing. It's like, oh, is that the left or the right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I guess top bottom is mm -hmm. kind of the, the question too. That, like when like, you look at when you see the reflection off of a off of a lake, right? You know, yeah. It's 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 reversed like a mirror. It's and it's like an inversion there. And and you have that sense of the sky meeting. You know, mm -hmm. like there's a uh, mm -hmm. a flip right. that occurs. Right. It's interesting that one of the techniques that's talked about traditionally to return to spiritual a spiritual practice to to be able to receive the spirit is to invert the thinking process right yes yes and that's what's represented in the prenatal bagua arrangement of the trigrams where you have mind states that are positioned opposite to their opposites mm. so every mm -hmm. three line trigram consists of 
broken or solid lines that are yin or yang. And then the opposite is just the flip of that. So wherever there's a yin line, there's a yang line. And wherever there's a yang line, there's a yin line. And those are balancing oppositional mental states. Mm. So it's exactly like what Patanjali talks about, where you neutralize the thought objects by bringing the attention to the opposites. Right. Yes. Um, Steiner gives an exercise um, of thinking something backwards. Hmm. So... It was CBA thinking, so to speak. So CBA? CBA, rather oh, than okay, ABC. Right. And that's right. like, I think, an exercise every night. You kind of go the, through the day backwards. There's the Rookshaw, yeah, the backwards review, where you can where you play your day backwards. Is that his thing? Yep. Mm-hmm. Rookshaw? Rookshaw. 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 It's like a German but, uh, term. It's very German. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, for, for those of us that are really simple like myself, I call it the backwards review, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> I like CBA, <laughs> but if like, but if there's but yeah, if there's a thought pattern that we're really struggling with, or if there's something that's up in our like you know maybe um, uh, like you had a sloppy human moment, right? And and you, you screw something up, and it's like go back and play it backwards hmm. rather than ABC ABC, which is how the brain is is programmed to think: hmm. beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end. Hmm. Play it backwards and middle beginning, and see if you can get to the origination point of why you might have done what you've done or said what you said. This reminds me of uh, one of Philip K. Dick's main points in his uh, uh, Valis trilogy, where he makes the claim that uh, real time actually moves backwards, mm-hmm. and that from the point of view of the spirit, we're moving towards the past, mm. and that that's. Reality, reality is actually time inverted. Wow, which is kind of a hard thing to really get your mind around. But yeah. there's something so elemental about it that when I heard it, I thought, "Now that is interesting." <laughs> I have no idea how to assess it, the idea, but but it obviously resonates with what we're talking about here. It's this kind of cosmic inversion of mm-hmm. the most fundamental process happening. Right, you know, right. and that makes sense too. Just on an equal and opposite type of, because you have in Newtonian force mechanics, you have for every force there's an equal and opposite force. Right, right, right. And so if we think of the movement of time as being a force, it would make sense that there would be an equal and opposite going the other way. Right. Sure. So maybe not Polarity. a physical force, but yeah. we could say it's a spiritual force because mm-hmm. time I think of as being not a physical phenomena. It's fundamentally a attribute of consciousness. So it's within the spiritual domain that time occurs. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it's uh, because time, you know, time's not linear also. I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't think. Well, I mean, I I would say it's just, it's, you know, it's kind of like, all right, I'm not going to go. It's frustrating. I mean, time isn't linear in the sense that there is no timeline. Right. But. There is a sequence of events, and there, as far as I can tell, there's no way to like reshuffle those events. Even though there is recently a, a, a report that said that uh, physicists managed to make time move backwards on, on a quantum level, but it's like if you really read what they're saying, it's not really what happened. It was mm-hmm. just, it was like there was a particular configuration of quantum states that they were able to return to. And they're saying that that's like 
turning yeah. time backwards. But it's like, yeah. no, that's not yeah. what you know. It's something very frustrating going on in the way that science is being reported these sure, days. Because sure. it's like yeah. every other thing it's, in the frickin' journalistic world where they want to have a headline that jumps out and makes everyone go, <laughs> yeah, "Yeah, we got time to go backwards." It's all about the spin. It's so, all about the spin. So, yeah, but clearly that's another theme that's really interesting. Like, what does it mean f- to have a culture that's preoccupied with this uh, revisionary view of time? Like, ever since uh, Back to the Future, you know, we've had a <laughs> slew of about a million films that are all about time turning backwards or turning time into knots. And, you know, nowadays it's almost impossible to go see a film that follows the natural progression of time. It's like you're pretty much guaranteed to have at least half a dozen flashbacks in the middle of it. So Time jumps forward, backwards. All over the place, you know, maybe into multiple dimensions of time. I was going to say, in simultaneity, right? You've got the the past and present happening. So it's like we're all used to this, right? Mm -hmm. Even though there's... Zero evidence of it ever being possible. <laughs> but this is another thing that I think is an underlying theme of a lot of what we're constantly prodding about, which is something about a lie becomes true if enough people are invested in it. Sure. So there is, sure. you know, time. That's a classic propaganda tactic right there. Exactly. But the thing about propaganda is that if it's effective, then you know, the victors do write the history. Mm. So on a certain level, even though on the baseline of reality, there may be a truth that is completely contrary, we might say inverted to what the propaganda is suggesting. Nevertheless, the propaganda has a life of its own, right? And so now many of us are walking around thinking of time travel as a perfectly reasonable concept. <laughs> you know? I don't know about you, but I don't want to go into my past. I'm, oh, I'm, happy, to, I'm happy to leave leave my past behind and uh, keep moving forward. You well, know? I, I think if so we're if we're present, correct in our assessment, then reality means that we're not going to be able to go back to that past. Right? Thank God. Yeah, no doubt. But we do have the spiritual capability of revisiting our impressions of it, which is not insignificant. Right? Mm. So, right. And there's something to be derived from all of that. But I think within the context of realizing that at every moment that you revisit the past, you're revisiting it anew, and you have the opportunity to see it in a new light. Exactly. And that's how you change the past, right? Oh, don't say it that oh way. yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> That's changed, how you change you the interpretation. You change of the, the interpretation, yeah. and you can find healing. <laughs> I mean, I do this all the time with 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 um, you know patients. So There's no doubt um, that go in and find where that pain point is, that wound is, and go back in there and find out what 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 gift did it give you? What lesson did it give you? What did you learn from that? How did it change you for the better that you went through that? Like I can look at my own life and when, when my life went through utter and complete collapse and I could paint like the most horrible picture of like losing everything in my life and then I can look back on that and go, well, actually, you know what? That made me who I am today. Interesting. And, and, and it super humbled me and it allowed me to figure out who I am without any attachments to things and an identity in anything. And, and it was horrible. It was horrific going through it. I would never wish it to go through it again. But had I not, 
I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't be the practitioner I am today. I wouldn't be able to be present with people the way I am today and offer the level of mm, care for the people I work with like well, I do today. How, how could you if you didn't experience the suffering yourself? Exactly. That's, that's I think, exactly. that is there, the spiritual path. R- right. I want to write a book someday called The Gift of Falling Apart. Huh, that's <laughs> a good title. You know, because there is a gift in it. There mm-hmm. really is. And I mean, I couldn't perceive that when I was in it, but as we're talking about, you know, I get through it, I get on the other side, and then I can look back mm-hmm. and, I, and I can be at peace with it. It's hmm. interesting. There's this whole thing about the past as um, a set of events that actually occurred. Like there's one way of referring to that, and we use the word past. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the story about all the events. Right. And we also call that the past. It would be great if we had two different words for those things. Like story? Story about the past. (laughs) Yeah, story, I guess, is always about the past. Right. We we have the facts of the past. This is what happened. And then we have the story of right. the past, which is... And we don't really know what the facts are. Right, because 100%. we're really great at lying to ourselves. And we're The brain also, is programmed to do that. Well, there, there's that, and then there's also the fact that we have limited perceptual abilities. We really only get a, a small sliver of information about the events that are occurring. Right. So our ability to form coherent pictures of the totality of what the events were, it's always, you know, super limited, way more limited than we ever want to admit. Mm-hmm. But that really does explain our situation in this existence. We really don't have that much information. Even if you spent all of your time trying to collect as much information as you could about a given period, it's amazing. The people who really study events within history, they have some incredible arguments going. Mm, yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. it's clear that the deeper you dive, the more, you know, the devil's in the details. So it's <laughs> like you want to uncover it and really figure out what the hell happened. It's like, okay. Pick your favorite event from the past and just see how many different scholars have come to different conclusions about it. It's fascinating. Including the ones reporting on it at the time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, quite often they were the worst because, you know, at a a point in history – well, there's always a political slant to things. So people who are in academia have certain interests that they're serving as well. But at at a particular moment in history, there's quite often a very urgent need to tell a story in a certain way. Yeah. So – I mean, that's – I mean, all your classic historians, like from, from, you know, let's say – you know, Persian Empire days and, and Roman Empire days. And I mean, these people who were writing about these things all had, um, you know, uh, their obvious opinions. Mm-hmm. Right. And but they also had objectives. Were, yeah, they had objectives to, of how to report this. Well, one of, the, one of the main objectives, because most of the things that were written in the ancient world were, of course, written by people who served the interests of power. It's not like everyone had the ability to jot things right. down. You know, right, it was right, a very right. small number of people who were keeping any kind of records on anything. And they were always in service of the powerful. And one of the main things that the powerful wanted to do was to scare the crap out of anyone who would give them a problem. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that's, you know, the... the the tales of conquest and of uh, the great acts that were achieved by this or that civilization or this or that ruler are basically propaganda to try to prevent anyone from screwing with them. Right. 
you know? So there was an underlying truth to the lie, which is that there's a real political situation that everyone has to deal with. If you're in a position of power and you don't want to get your head cut off, you have to scare the bejeebies out of anyone else who's vying for those positions that you're in. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's the truth of the situation, right. regardless of what lie is being told in order to kind of facilitate that process. It's frustrating, yeah. right? Because we want to try to get to some sense of what's really going on. But I, I like that kind of basic uh, admission that our senses are very limited, and so we're really always going to have an incomplete picture. Although I know it yeah. ends up in this weird relativistic world that is very problematic because then you're just like, well, it is whatever the hell you think it is. And <laughs> that's – it just – that's not that either, you know? <laughs> That's not a solution. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like, and when you really listen to serious uh, historians, they're very reserved about what they're going to say. I think it's most people who are really interested in studying things are like, well, you know, based on the limited information that we have, right. it looks like this or that might be most likely. But then there's another scenario that could well be the case, you know. Mm -hmm. And we're dealing with that now with everything that, that comes up, and particularly in an age where information is so malleable. You know? Oh, I mean, you, we have no, I mean, you and I have talked about this so many times, but mm -hmm. we, you have no idea what is true today. At all, in any way, shape, or form. Well, except that we know that we don't know it's true. That's yeah, that, true. That's true. You know, and, that, that and there are a true. number of things along those lines. <laughs> uh, my friend who uh, who was commenting that I'm uh, that you're very patient. <laughs> he he's been uh, trying to get me to to listen to this French philosopher. His name is Jacques Il. E-L-L-U-L, I believe, something like that. And his whole thing is about what technology is doing to humanity. Mm, mm. And it's it's huge. It's really sure. interesting. And I'm just kind of getting my, my head around it. But a lot of it has to do with – he says that – What's happened to us is we've lost the ability to reflect on things and we act reflexively. Oh, yeah. Boy, isn't that true, right? Instantaneous response with everything, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Insta-response culture. Is and it's like the technology demands that of us because if you're driving at 60 miles an hour, you can't afford to think everything through. Right, you right. have to operate on reflex. So there's many things now, and it's not just that. It's the information stream itself because there's so much information coming in. How much of it can you really digest and reflect on? Right, and how? And I think that's where like setting up that that's where boundaries really come into play here is like where, where what is one's boundary? I know a practice that I, I try and have is is not to instantly respond to a text message if it doesn't require an instant response, but it's got that sense of like, oh, there's maybe some energy behind it. Uh-huh. You know, I don't have to instantly respond. I don't right. have to instantly email. I don't have to instantly text. I don't have to, I, I can pause. It's true. I can provide, some, I can, I can, I can take some space, but, but because of the nature of the culture right now is so, there is this social pressure almost, this, uh, or peer pressure to respond. Uh, yeah. You know, instantly or quickly or within a set period of time, it's definitely an an act of will to say, actually, I'm going to I'm going to move against that stream. OK, now the word you just used is exactly. So you said against. And I think, you know, I, I struggle with that whole thing, too. And I 
make that decision as well sometimes, but I have this gut feeling about it that like it, acting against it by not giving it that power is in a certain way giving it that power, you know, like you're putting a sense of what its urgency is and you're saying, you know what, that isn't real. And in other words, it gives it more attention than it deserves. Maybe I should re- maybe I should maybe clarify what I was meaning in saying. I think I need to clarify too because that was a complete disaster. <laughs> what I just said, it's a complete mess. <laughs> when I say moving against it, I mean moving against the internal pressure that I have to respond right. immediately. So right. it's like it's like oh, I can actually um, suspend that. Yeah, that, suspend is a good word. Yeah, so I can yeah. suspend that sense of urgency and open up and create some space around it and go, all right, I know I need to tend to that, but I'm going to give it some space so that I can allow uh, the real thought to arise rather than the reflexive thought to, right. to come through. Right. right. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, having some interesting interactions online because I've decided that I may as well, like in in what we're doing right now, right? So we're expressing our thoughts and we're putting it out into the interwebs and what happens to them, whatever. That's what happens to them. God bless whoever takes up these (laughs) thoughts. We hope it's good for you. At any rate, um, you get into these interactions with people sometimes where there is kind of a snowball effect and you can feel like, getting pulled into there's a desire to want to respond quickly Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. i think that what you're talking about is perfect it's like give it that time for reflection and don't go for the reflex right you know it's beautiful way of of uh handling this kind of stuff because maybe the whole thing would be of greater value to everyone if we did allow that rumination process to occur, and there's no reason why we can't, you know, one, once you're in interaction with someone, why not take the extra day or two or whatever it is to really give it some thought before you throw your thing back out there? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm in. I've been having this really fun interaction with a friend of mine, um, where we we'll, when we get together and hang out, we'll sit. And we might spend a significant amount of time in silence for a while mm. and just allow, like, what's the next, like, the next thing of meaning or. So that's the real assembly of, of silence. Content. You've actually got the real assembly, assembly of, of silence. silence. Yeah. It's going. Yeah. So we sit. And this is just a simulation. <laughs> this, we can't afford to just sit here in silence for 40 minutes. People would, well, we don't, we don't spend 40 minutes in silence, but we might spend a few minutes and then, and then. Boom, up comes, like, up arises Mm -hmm. a thought rather than this feeling to, like, create or generate. We've never had that problem. No, I know, exactly. (laughs) But then we'll talk, we'll have, like, this little, we'll have this little interaction and then it'll go silent again. I remember reading a long time ago that that was the way that um, the Native Americans would meet. If they, would come into contact with a new group that they had never met before. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't like shake hands or speak or anything. They would basically just hang out in the same area and just listen and kind of maybe sit down. And, and I, I don't remember where I read that, and I don't really know if it's true or not, but it really uh, impressed me. I always thought, now that really makes sense. Right. You know? Yeah. And we do the opposite. We tend to be 
more talkative than normal when we meet people who we haven't met before. Mm-hmm. Sort of make the effort right, is right. the term that's quite often used, you know? Right. But wow, I mean, what would happen if we were literally silent? I mean, probably it would be considered extremely rude by most standards, right? At this uh, yeah, point. and I think it would probably make most people uncomfortable, right? Right. <laughs> I met this new person, and they just sat in silence around me. And now, what if what if you you met someone and you said, "Oh, I've never met you before. I'm going to be quiet for a while now, and I invite you to do the same because then we can listen and and just kind of." Feel. Yeah. So let's just do that for a second. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. And if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash silentassembly. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>